we are starting a series today that's going to take us through the whole rest of the summer. It's even going to take us into the beginning of September. And the idea behind this series, the title of it is Think Like Jesus. Think Like Jesus. And here, here's, here's my thoughts. Here's what I'm thinking about lately. I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what we think about. I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what we think about. In fact, I think most of us don't spend any time thinking about what we think about. And yet our thoughts drive everything else, don't they? Our actions, our behaviors, why I do something, why I don't do something. It's all driven by my thoughts. What would it, what would it look like for us to take a thought inventory and actually begin to think about what we think about. There's different ways you can do that. You can set alarms during the day, and, and it, when an alarm goes off, like you instantly write down like what you're thinking. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm not asking you to go into all that, but what, what I am asking you is to think about what you think about. Like, and here's the thing. Our shapes are all, all formed by something or someone. Right? Is it, have you ever had this experience where at work or at school or maybe in a family dinner, like you're sitting down and you start talking about a topic and a family member or a student or someone you work with starts spouting off some stuff and you go, how in the world could you think that way about fill in the blank, right? You ever had one of those like moments where you're like, really? Like you think that way? Well, their thoughts have been formed by other people and other things that they've read or other news sources. They say your thoughts have been formed by people, by situations, by experiences. All of us have had thoughts formed by something or someone. And so the idea behind this series is what would it look like as followers of Jesus that our thoughts would be shaped and formed by Jesus? That, that our thoughts would be shaped and formed by what Jesus had to say and what Jesus did, and how Jesus responded in different situations, how he reacted. Like, what would it look like for us to have our thoughts shaped by Jesus, to actually think like Jesus? So how do we do that? Well, we're going to spend the rest of the summer looking at the longest recorded sermon of Jesus's that's recorded in, in antiquity, and we find it in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which probably doesn't help you at all because it's like one big book, right? So Matthew, if you get to Mark or Luke or John or Acts or any of the first and seconds you've gone too far, Matthew Chapter 5, and I'm trying to turn there as well, Matthew chapter 5, and you could read, this sermon starts in Matthew chapter 5, it continues into Matthew chapter 6, and goes into Matthew chapter 7, and like I said, we're going to spend the rest of the summer unpacking this, going through this verse by verse. You could sit down and read this entire sermon in about 20 minutes, but I'm telling you, if you just read through it in 20 minutes, you're going to miss so much. That's why we're going to take our time walking through this. But is everybody there in Matthew 5? This is Jesus. He's speaking. This is probably near the beginning of his ministry. And it says this in verse 1, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. So, so the core audience is Jesus who is speaking. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his followers, which would have been beyond just the immediate 12 young men that, that we know of. This probably included well over 100 people who actively followed Jesus around 
you know, to hear him teach, to see him perform miracles and heal people. And he's going to begin teaching them something. In fact, he's going to start right out of the gates with eight points. So we're going to look at all eight this morning, so we're going to fly through them. But in each of these eight points that we're going to see, beginning in verse 3... He uses a Greek word, and I don't like to get nerdy on you, and I'm not one of these people who likes to just throw around Greek words to make you kind of go get all dizzy, but, but this Greek word is going to be really important to what we look at because it begins each of the verses. In fact, this Greek word is repeated nine times in verses 3 through 12. It's the Greek word makarios, makarios, and makarios, because remember, Jesus didn't speak in English. Some people think that he spoke in King James Version English. No, uh, he, he spoke in Aramaic and in Greek. And so we're so grateful that we have Greek and Aramaic scholars who go back to the original documents and they translate it for us into modern English so that we can understand what he's saying. But, but the word that we see in the English is the word blessed, but it doesn't fully convey what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in our modern English, blessed is kind of taken on kind of a, a weird, a, a weirdness, isn't it? Like, if you're on social media, maybe you've ran into a picture on social media, and you'll see on Instagram or something, you'll see something you're scrolling through, and you'll see a picture of, you know, a young, handsome guy standing right next to his brand new car with his keys in his hands, and it will say, hashtag blessed, Right? Okay, well, well, is that blessed? Or maybe you'll see a picture of someone and they're at a steakhouse, you know, super expensive meal, and they've got all the food on the table, and it looks incredible, and it'll say, hashtag blessed, right? So, so here, here's the question, like, what does blessed mean? And it can't just mean something for one culture. It's got to mean something for all cultures. We're coming back from the Dominican Republic, and none of the people we minister to will probably ever stand in front of a brand new car with keys to be able to say hashtag blessed. Most of them will never sit in a fancy steakhouse with all this food surrounding them and be like hashtag blessed. But can they still be blessed? So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, this word makarios actually means to have the approval or the acceptance of God. Now, which, which I got to back up because like we go, okay, that's nice. But think about this. It's the idea that the everlasting, eternal God who has all wisdom, all strength, all power, all might, that he looks down into this little blip of history because we are living in just a blip. If you look at the whole timeline of eternity, we're just a blip, and that he would look into this blip of history, and he would see you, or he would see me, just a knucklehead, and he would look down, and he would say, that's my boy. That's my girl. It's the approval. It's the acceptance of God. One commentary said that it's the smile of God, the applause of God. There's a, there's a scene in Acts chapter 7, you don't need to turn there, where, where there's a follower of Jesus named Stephen who is just boldly going at it, declaring the truth of God to a group of people who don't want to hear it. And he's telling them about Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah, and you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. He's telling them, and they get so angry at Stephen that they push him out and into the outskirts of the city, and they start picking up boulders, and they're going to they're gonna stone him to death. This is how he's going to die, is boulders being hurled at him. And right before he dies, as they're picking up these boulders, I mean, this is, you, you hear about manly men, I don't care who you're talking about, Stephen is the man. He's standing up for truth, they're picking up boulders to throw them at him, and he looks up, and the heavens open, 
and he sees Jesus and Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the Father as he is in every other instance where it shows the resurrected, exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. No, this time Stephen looks up and, and Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. And it's, if, you, if you walk right past it, you wouldn't even notice. But what is Jesus doing? He's going, that's my boy. Stephen, that's my boy. You're about to go through some intense pain it's just going to last for a moment but i'm telling you there's a whole eternity in front of you i accept you i approve you you are blessed can i ask you in that moment does stephen feel like he is in the english american equivalency hashtag blessed not at all but the son of god eternally existent crucified risen ascended exalted is standing at his feet looking in all of human history sees stephen and says I approve you. I accept you. You're blessed. That changes the whole idea of blessed, doesn't it? Doesn't that? Like, I, I mean, it's like, hashtag blessed. No, no, that's not what Jesus is going to be talking about. So let's look at, he's going to make eight statements that are going to, they're going to, it's an upside down way of thinking about blessing, of thinking about the approval of God. We think in our modern culture, we think that blessing is one way, and Jesus is about to say, no, 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 I'm going to give you a whole different counterintuitive, countercultural way of thinking about the approval and the acceptance, the smile, the applause of God. So we're now in verse 3, and he's starting the sermon, and these are the first words that he speaks in his sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First group of people that, that are accepted and approved by God who are going to experience the smile and the applause of God are those who are poor in spirit. Now we understand poor. We get that from an economic perspective. We get poor. But what in the world is this idea of the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who come to the place of recognizing, I have nothing. My, my pockets are empty. God, I have nothing that I can offer you. There's nothing. I don't, I don't have any giftedness. I don't have any. There's nothing awesome about me. I am nothing. I have nothing. I'm broken. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. God, I come before you, hands empty, humbling myself, saying, here I am. Poor in spirit. And Jesus says, when you are poor in spirit and you come before God with this emptiness, with this spiritual bankruptcy, and you say, God, here I am. I have nothing, I am nothing, but I give you myself. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God, yes, of course, but more than that, it is the presence of God. And so there's this double side. There's a blessing. It's the approval. It's the acceptance of God. It's the smile of God. It's the applause of God. And there is the presence of God that when you come, you think that you're at the end of your rope and Jesus says, oh, now it's about to begin. Have you been there? Now what Jesus is after is that we stay in that place. Not in an artificial, manipulated way, oh, I'm going to sell all my stuff. And, no, no, that we live in this constant place of humility, of brokenness before God, where instead of allowing spiritual pride to puff myself up, that I'm constantly in this place of saying, God, I am nothing, I have nothing apart from you. God, I need you today. 
I need you for the very air that I breathe. So when you came in this morning, you got this blue card. Did everybody get one of these? If you didn't scoot in next to someone who does have one and this is your opportunity, if you're single and you don't have one of these, find a single person of the opposite gender in the room and you can go sit down next to them and just say, hey, can uh, pastor says I need to read off this, so... It's your opportunity. What we're going to do, we're going to do some response reading. We don't usually do this at Journey, but we're going to do some response reading. And I'd like for you to read this out loud with me, point number one. All of these correlate with the verses that we're going to be looking at today. So point number one, are you ready to read out loud? Here we go. Number one, I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy and my need for God. Because my relationship with God depends on his grace, I know I'm incapable of earning God's love on my own. Now I'm telling you, this is so pivotal, it is so foundational. I'm saved by grace through faith and not of works. Because as soon as I think that I'm saved, that I'm made right with God through deeds or through works, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? I begin to boast. I begin to think that, ooh, I'm the man. God, aren't you so glad that I'm part of your team? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the question. Did Jesus just teach this, or did Jesus live this? Jesus lived this. In fact, this one out of these eight, these are, this is the most complicated, because Jesus really didn't have to be poor in spirit. Jesus really was perfect. He was sinless. He never did it. So he could, he, he is the son of God. He could walk into every room and say, Jesus is here, son of God, miracle maker, way maker, here I am. Like he could have walked into, Jesus is here. Right, if anybody, any human who has ever lived had the right to do it, Jesus had the right to do it. And yet, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I'm not going to read through it all in this service, but he says that Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of humanity. He laid down his deity. What does he do? He's showing us what this means, this idea of poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's keep going. Number two, this would be found in verse four. Second blessed, second makarios. He says, blessed, makarios, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, this is upside down. We think, wait, 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 no. Blessed are you when you're happy. Blessed are you when you're laughing. Jesus is doing it. In the kingdom of God, there, there's an approval and acceptance, a smile and applause of God. When you are in the place of mourning, God gives you special attention. When was the last time you mourned before God, that you grieved before God? Now, this isn't just from loss of, of loved ones. and that, Of course, there's, there's something valuable in grieving and, and mourning that loss. And by the way, we never completely get over the loss of a loved one, right? This is something beyond that. This is, a, this is a grieving over the sin that is around me, and even more importantly, it's a grieving of the sin that is in me. That I'm broken over, I'm broken over the things that break God's heart. When I see things that break the heart of God, I don't just, I'm not flipping about it. I don't just walk past it. I allow it to break me. I allow myself to be grieved by those things that break God's heart. Because there's something that happens sometimes in our services even, that, that in the midst of us just declaring the greatness of God through our singing, that sometimes there's, there, there's just, you find yourself crying. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands because that would be weird or awkward, but sometimes in singing, you just go, man, I don't know why I'm crying. Can I tell you, 
That, that's God just softening you. It's softening. He, he's healing you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So let's get out our blue cards here, and now we're on number two. Everybody there, number two? We're going to read this together. I feel the pain that sin, including my own, causes. I can let others know when I am hurting. Without embarrassment, I can weep like Jesus did. So how do we see this in the life of Jesus? He, he doesn't just teach this, he practices it. Well, we, if you grew up in the church, you grew up going to Sunday school or VBS, and you ever had a teacher say, I want you next week to memorize a verse from the Bible, little Kenny. And if you do, we'll give you a Snickers bar. Some of you went to that church. And so if you were like me and you were smart, Alec, right, you'd be like, I'm going to show you that I can memorize scripture. John eleven thirty five, 35, right? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. Say it with me. Jesus wept, right? And we, we thought we were like smart Alex, right? I'm trying to use good, proper language. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So get away from that, Ken. So, um, Jesus wept, right? And we thought we're just, you know, haha, Jesus wept. Give me my Snickers bar, right? But what a powerful theological truth that Jesus, the Son of God, in the midst of his friend dying, in the midst of the grief of all of his friends around him, that Jesus weeps. You know, Jesus was prophetically called a man of sorrows. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Jesus, as he is at the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be arrested, Jesus is wrestling with God over this. And of course, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. But in the midst of it, he is weeping. He's sweating like blood, right? Like, like Jesus doesn't just teach, blessed are those who mourn. Like, Jesus lives this, right? Let's keep going. Verse 4, or no, we just did verse 4. Where are we at? Verse 5. Verse 5, here's our third, Makarios. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I, you know, when I hear the word meek, I'm probably like you. Like, if you hear the word meek, what do you think of? We think of weak, right? Like, blessed are the, is Jesus saying blessed are the weak? No, Jesus is not saying blessed are the weak. We have some collegiate football players in the room. So, hey, we're not saying, these guys don't need to be weak, they, they need to show incredible strength. Listen, Jesus was probably one of the strongest men who ever walked the face of this earth. I mean, he was a carpenter from the time of probably 12 years old. All, probably for 18 years he lived as a carpenter. And back then they didn't have all the equipment and all the stuff that we have today to make it a little easier. Like, this was manual labor. Jesus, Jesus was anything but weak. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, what is he talking about? This Greek word that we use, for, that, that we translate meek, really means power under control. Jesus had all power. He had all strength. And not just in a spiritual sense, in a physical sense. He had immense power and strength. But he was able to keep it under control. In fact, we were talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane a few moments ago. Remember, right after he gets done praying to his father, Judas comes with all the temple guards and Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
And they're, they're trying to arrest Jesus, and Peter, one of Jesus' followers, takes out a sword and tries to whack one of the guys. He's, try, he's aiming for the head, but he's not very good with the sword. He gets the guy's ear. It's kind of a comical moment in the whole arrest of Jesus. And Jesus picks up the ear and heals him. And then Jesus says this. This is in Matthew 26, verse 53. Jesus says, this is crazy. He says, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. All I would have to do is say the word. In fact, all I would have to do is give my father the look. And there would be thousands of angels. And we're not talking about little, wimpy, naked, cherubim, baby angels. We're talking about warrior angels, ripped and ready for war, right? All I have to do is ask. And thousands of angels would be here in a moment. What is that telling you about Jesus? He's meek. Not my will, God. Your will be done. I have all the strength. I have all the power. I could do something instantly, but I know in this moment you are asking me for power under control. And so when you get out your blue cards, and we're going to read number three. Ready? I don't have to always display my power and strength. I can be tender and gentle. I've given control of my life to God, and I don't always have to win. Unless you're playing football, but that's a different story, right? Right? So have you ever seen someone with immense strength? or Maybe some of your grandfathers, you see them like playing on the floor, like laying on the floor, and kids are all on top. Man, I I just love, I, I, uh, I love this idea, right? All right, let's keep going. Number four. This is now verse 6. I'm saying number 4, but it's verse 6. It's going to be very confusing. <laughs> verse 6, which would be number 4, is our fourth Makarios. Number 4, or verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now this is really important. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a double-sided coin. Righteousness is I be right, and the other side of the coin is that I do right. Be right is positionally before God. My own righteousness is like filthy rags. I don't have any ways of, this is, remember we talked about being poor in spirit, but I take on the righteousness of Christ and now positionally, because I'm now robed in the righteousness of Christ that came at the cost of Jesus laying down his life on the cross, I'm now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see the filthy rags, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Positionally before God, I be right. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'd be right. I'd be right, okay? But the other side of the coin is, and so many Christians stop there. Oh, positionally, I'm right. The other side of the coin is, I do right. Positionally, I'd be right. Now, physically, in the outward demonstrations in my responses, I do right. You say, well, what do you do that's right? Anything that I see around me that is right, I do it. I do it, right? So, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are passionate about righteousness. Here's why this one's so important for us today in 2023. Pollsters tell us, people like Gallup, Barna, they tell us as they're doing polls of Americans, pollsters tell us that the ethical gap between Christians and non-Christians is narrowing. You say, okay, Ken, that sounds really collegiate. Tell me, I don't understand what you just said. What I mean is... The actions of those who profess to be followers of Christ and those who say that they are not followers of Christ, when you look at their lives, there seems to be no difference. 
No difference in our sexuality, no difference in our finances, no difference in cheating on taxes. No di- I mean, you can just go down the line. The, the ethical gap between those, you look 40 years ago and someone who was a Christian, there was a difference in how they lived compared to those who are non-Christian. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just righteousness out there in the world, but God, I want to be right, I want to do right. And what is the promise? They will be filled. I think when you talk to Christians, especially in the United States of America, most Christians, it, when, if they let their guard down and they'll be honest about it, and this wouldn't be true of you guys, but it's true of so many others, it would say, Christianity is really boring. I, I don't feel like I found what I'm looking for when it comes to my faith. It, it kind of feels empty. It kind of feels hollow. I think one of the reasons is we're, we're starving because we're not hungering after righteousness. And so it feels like we're empty because we're, not hung, we're hungering after all the spiritual junk food of this world and we're not hungering after righteousness. Again, that's not true of you guys. It's true of probably people in the first service, but, <laughs> right? So let's, let's, read, let's read this statement. This would be number four. And just imagine if this was true. We're making declarations here, okay? So maybe what we need to do is just declare these things enough that they become true of us, right? Number four, let's read this. I want to know God more than anything, including my own pleasure, status, or success. My heart truly longs for God. Now here's the question. Did Jesus hunger and thirst for righteousness? Yeah, oh yeah, he did. Yeah, it's constantly going, God, not my will, your will be done. He constantly, like, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Like, he was so hungry to be right and to do right. Number five, this would be verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I want to ask you a question. Do you carry a grudge? Or do you carry mercy? Do you have mercy for the people around you? Do you have mercy for those who are physically and economically distressed? Do you have mercy for people who are hurting around you? See, what he says, he says right there, he says, blessed are the merciful, and then here's a promise, for they, implying those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. If you show mercy, if you plant mercy, you're going to harvest mercy, right? And the implication is that this is before God. Like if I want the mercy of God, I need to show mercy to the people around me, right? So let's look at this one. This is number five on our card. Let's say this out loud. I can walk alongside people who are hurting, lonely, or distressed God has given me a sensitivity for the suffering of others and a compassion to help them. And not just to see it, but when I have the ability to do something about it, right? So did Jesus have mercy? The scripture tells us that Jesus is literally, I mean, spikes are being pounded through his wrists, pounded through his ankles, And what is Jesus' response? He is saying, 
you look this up in your Bibles, he is saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Now, the Greek, in the Greek, like, we read that and we go, okay, like, Jesus was checking off things off the list. Like, okay, I, you know, these, uh, so many other things Jesus wants to say, but instead he's checking the thing off the list. So he says, Father, forgive them. But here's the thing. The Greek implies that he was saying this over and over again. It wasn't just a check, okay, I'm the son of God and I'm being crucified. I need to say, Father, forgive them. Like, over and over again, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to show mercy to? Let's go to verse 8. This would be our number 6, our 6th Makarios. These are the people that God approves, people that God accepts. It says, number 6, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. I, I kind of struggled over this one. I was looking at this, and pure in the Greek is used to describe clear water or metals without alloy. And so Jesus is pointing to a heart that is singular in its devotion to God. That, that, that there's, there's no contaminants, right? That, it, that I'm purely devoted to God. If, if you ever hear the word in, integrity, right? We hear, you know, this person really has integrity. The word integrity comes from the math word that you, you remember maybe from high school math, the word integer. Remember, integer is not a fraction, Integers is a whole number. So the idea is that I, have, I don't have multiple allegiances. That God alone, remember we did a series, we said God alone sits on the throne, right? That it's not God plus this, plus this, plus this. No, there's not divided allegiances. God alone is sitting in the throne of my heart. God alone is leading my life. I have no other masters in my life. This is the idea when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, that there's no contaminants, there's nothing else, that I'm singular in my devotion to God. So let's read in, on our cards, number six. I am completely honest with God and others. I don't have to put on a false front or pretend to be something I'm not. My life is marked with openness and integrity. I'm the, I'm the same in church as I am in a party with a bunch of my friends from work. I'm the same when a bunch of Christians are sitting around as I am when I'm alone with a device in my hands and what I'm looking at on this device, on my phone, on a tablet. Like I, there's, not, there's not different Ken's. There's one singular, I'm singular in my devotion to God. Was Jesus pure in heart? Absolutely. Sinless, perfect. And yet, here's the incredible thing. His perfection didn't make him rigid and demanding. He was the most joyful person the world has ever known because he was always of the presence of the Father. This is why, like, we think that this means, okay, that, 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 I mean, Jesus was perfectly comfortable sitting in the home of a Pharisee, same comfort level as he was sitting in the home of a notorious sinner, a tax collector, hanging around with prostitutes. Why? Because he was the same person. He was pure in heart. Let's keep going. We only have two more. Some of you are looking at your watches going, how much longer? <laughs> Number seven. This is in verse nine. Number seven is in verse nine, our seventh Makarios. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Okay, so for Jesus, the idea of peace would be one that probably a lot of you in this room are familiar with. It'd be the Hebrew idea of shalom. 
And shalom isn't the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of war or of tension or trouble. Shalom, that's not what shalom is. Shalom is pursuing wholeness and well-being for my life and for the lives of the people around me. And so sometimes shalom requires actually making waves. This this is counterintuitive. This is really weird. But sometimes shalom means that I communicate about something that is really hard or difficult because I want there to be well-being. I want there to be life in this relationship. And so instead of pretending that this conflict doesn't exist, I'm going to address the conflict, but I'm going to do so in a loving, grace-filled, prayer-filled way, waiting for the right time and the right moment to have a conversation that's really tough to say, you know what? I need you to help me understand what's going on here. Because this can't keep happening. Right? Like we hear peacemaker and we think, well, that means I just need to let, you know, bullies be bullies. Now, sometimes blessed are the peacemakers means I'm going to pursue shalom and I'm willing, I'm willing to speak really hard. Thing. I'm going to do it in the gentlest Great, most grace-filled way that I possibly can. But I'm, we're, we need to have this conversation. So, so here it is, uh, second to last one on your uh, blue hash sheet, number seven. Ready to read with me? You guys are so sick of reading, aren't you? <laughs> here we go. Let's read together. I deal with others constructively rather than allowing anger and conflict to fester. I help those around me work out their differences without hurting one another. And can I tell you, this is, this is way easier said than done. One of the reasons why there's so much instability in our homes, so much dysfunction in our homes, is because we're not willing to pursue peace. Pursuing peace means I've got to talk about difficult things. Okay, here's our last one. And boy, is it a doozy. This is verse 10. And actually in verses 10 through 12, Jesus is going to use this word makarios actually twice. Here we are, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in a sense, before we get into this persecuted idea, we have these bookends, which in the Greek, and even from a Hebrew-Jewish mindset, would be really crazy. In verse 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And then the last one, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of these are about the kingdom of heaven. All of these are about experiencing the rule and the reign and the presence of God in our lives. So blessed are those who are persecuted. He goes on, Jesus goes on and repeats himself, but this time he makes it personal to the audience. In verse 11, he says, um, yeah, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And here's the qualifying phrase that you need to underline in your Bibles, because of me. Okay? There's people out there that people insult them and falsely say all kinds of things about them because they're jerks. And they'll say, oh, I'm being persecuted for being a Christian. No, you're not being persecuted for being a Christian. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Okay? The, this phrase, because of me, is meaning because of that you are in alignment with Jesus. 
Because you're in alignment with Jesus, sometimes we're going to have conflict with the ways of this world, the thoughts of this world, the speech of this world, because we've chosen, I'm going to be in alignment with Jesus as opposed to being in alignment with how this world thinks that, says that I'm supposed to think about this, right? He says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So my focus isn't just on the rewards of this earth. My focus is that this life is just a vapor. It's a spitting in the wind. I'm here today. I'm gone tomorrow. But, but eternal life is everlasting. And so my eye is not on how can I get the most comfort in this world. It's about there. I want to build up rewards for heaven. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the fact that Jesus in this, if you notice, out of all the eight, Jesus repeats himself with this eighth makarios, and he even personalizes this final beatitude. He's telling us that this is extremely important. Listen, guys, we should not be surprised when persecution comes. Rather, we should be surprised if following Jesus never invites harassment at all. If you've been following Jesus for months and for years and you've been renewing your mind with the truth of God's word and you've been trying to be in alignment with Christ and act the way that Christ would want you to act, can I just tell you, you're going to bump into some ridicule. If you never bump into any ridicule, either it means all of your friends and all of your coworkers are righteous followers of Jesus, and we'll talk about why that's a danger next week, or it means that you're really not living in alignment with Christ and you're allowing the world to influence you way too much. If you follow Jesus, you will pay a price. It will affect your popularity. It will affect your life today. I believe there's going to come a day where it's going to affect how we make our living. That's not very popular. It won't sell many books or Get many views on YouTube. We say this a lot, but following Jesus, when you become a follower of Jesus, can we just be, can we be honest for a moment? But following Jesus doesn't mean like God is this cosmic, you know, oh, let me take away all of your ouchies and boo-boos and let me make life safe for you. Let me make sure that you're comfortable the rest of your life. Here's some cupcakes. Here's some unicorns. Like when you become a follower of Jesus, you now take the side of righteousness. You take the side of the almighty living God who has an enemy. And this enemy really has no power, but he has come to steal and kill and destroy. And he does it through lying and through manipulation of truth. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you join a battle, a war that has been waged for all of eternity at this point. And life can be hard, but Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. My applause, this is Jesus saying, I applaud you, I accept you, I approve you, I smile upon you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. In fact, yours is the kingdom of heaven, the rule, the reign of heaven. Let's read this final statement, number eight. Let's read this one with the most volume, okay? So, so you've been 
getting a little weak on me through some of these, but let's, let's do it right on this one. It's our last one, number eight. I know for whom and for what I am living, and for this I am willing to suffer, and if need be, stand alone for what is right. I can take criticism without reacting defensively or feeling self-pity. Okay, so here's my question. Did Jesus live this? Did he just preach this and teach this, or did he live this? Was he verbally persecuted? Oh, yeah. Who do you think you are? Son of a carpenter, son, you know, was Joseph really your real dad? I mean, Jesus got the mocking. He got the ridicule. Did he face physical persecution? The worst. The absolute worst. Beaten to the point where others would die from the amount of beating that he endured. Forced to carry his cross naked through the streets of Jerusalem, hoisted up after he had spikes driven through his hands and through his feet. Would suffocate to death for three hours, suffocate. Here's a question. When you think about that audience, and I, I imagine it was a beautiful day that Jesus is teaching the sermon, and his audience is his disciples, his followers. Did they experience persecution? Maybe you don't know the answer. Maybe you're like, I don't know, did they? All but one of his, well, there's the one who hung himself, who betrayed Jesus. But of the 11, all but one of them gave their lives because they refused to recant that Jesus was a crucified, risen son of God. Throughout history, we tell you a whole long line of history of Jesus' followers who have been persecuted. Today, in this moment, in this age, all over our world, there are Christians who are being persecuted. Some who are losing their lives because they take a stand for Christ and they live in alignment with Christ. So I guess in light of, after all this, this counterintuitive, upside down way that Jesus says that his followers should live, the question I want to ask you is, do you want to sign up? You want to sign up to follow Jesus? Or are you just going to take your cues from the world and just live the way the world says to live? And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, you may be comfortable in that place, but you'll be empty and you won't experience the peace that God has for you. You will live purposeless. I, in following Jesus, I'm not promising that it's going to be easy. Counter to some of the Christians that you see out there in social media, it's, you might not necessarily live your best life now. But there will be reward. And there is reward. There's life everlasting. There's a promise of the kingdom of heaven. There's a promise that the eternal everlasting God smiles upon you and sees you and applauds you and accepts you and approves you. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. If you're here today and you've never committed your life to following Jesus, you've never said yes to him. Quite honestly, maybe what you've seen of Christianity has been kind of wussy, kind of weak. Seems like it's just a bunch of hollow religion. 
I want to challenge you to follow Jesus, not to follow me, not to follow a church or a denomination. My challenge is, will you give the rest of your life to following this one who died for you and who teaches a brand new way of living? And if that's you this morning, I think in light of what we just read, instead of bowing our heads and closing our eyes, if you'd say, Ken, I want to live for Jesus. And this is a new, I'm not asking everybody in the room to come forward. But if there's something inside of you that you need a, to make a point of decision, maybe you have not been following, maybe, maybe you made a decision to follow Christ in the past, but you say, Ken, I have not been following Jesus. I want to put, I, I, want, I want to make a clear delineation that I'm following Jesus. Maybe you've never made that decision. Say, Ken, what am I signing up for? That you come before and poor in spirit saying, God, I I have nothing, I am nothing. I'm sin-stained, sin-covered. I'm 100% in need of you. I believe, Jesus, that you are the son of God, that you were crucified and risen again so that my sins can be forgiven. You took the punishment I deserve, and so I'm giving my life to following after you. If you want to make that commitment, I'm going to ask you just to walk to the front. I'm fully aware that this might be the most awkward moment of your day. But that's you and you say, I'm not following Jesus, but today I want to make a decision. I want to, I'm going to walk to the front. I say, well, that's not very easy. I'd rather people close their eyes and bow their heads. I don't want them to see this. Anybody at all? moment where you say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Anybody else? Yeah. Just stand right here in the front. I'm going to ask our prayer partners or other ministry leaders to come and we're just going to pray for these who have come up but I'm looking around and you got I mean you guys know Jesus you've been following Jesus this is a reaffirmation all over this room would you pray with me dear heavenly father Come on, pray it. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified and resurrected from the grave so that I might have life. Forgive me of my sins. Be the master and leader of my life. Empower me by your Spirit to go where you want me to go, to say what you want me to say, to do what you want me to do. I want to actively, actually follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Thank you for your acceptance and your approval. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Can I just tell you, your Heavenly Father's applauding you, and we applaud you, and we're so blown away. And this is the beginning, this is a, this is a, it's a hard step, but this is the beginning, and the reason why it was hard this morning is because following Jesus is hard. Because you're going to be asked to make decisions that aren't, that go so against the flow of culture. That I'm giving Jesus not just my spirituality, I'm giving Jesus all that I am and all that I have. All the ways that I identify myself, whether it's as a football player or as a student or as an artist, that now the identity is going to be, I'm a follower of Christ first and foremost, above all else. And I love you. I'm cheering for you. If you haven't been baptized yet, I can't wait to baptize you. We're going to get it, right? Right. All right. Hey, let's follow Jesus. We're way late. Love you guys. Have a great week. Come back next week. We're going to talk about the next part of Jesus' sermon of being salt and light.